I have. I recorded it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they were talking in, in, a, in a book out of recovery, you know, as Bill sees it. There were, you know, there's a lot of writings and things he did after 39 and stuff that would come out in the 50s. And so I think that's when he came out. And so he says this thing that, you know, physical sobriety isn't enough, you know, just the one statement. And then you can see, so I was listening to everybody, and then I was, uh, so then, you know, my mind formulated around it, and I said, yeah, well, like the, if you go to Dr. Silkworth's statement in the foreword, and I, one of the beginnings of the big book, is that, you know, he, he, he took it to be a disease, and like a two-pronged disease, you know, the physical allergy, which the physical sobriety would, would uh, relieve, yeah? So if you don't drink, you're not going to break out in hives, in a sense. So that's already taken care of. But the real thing, then when you get the activity of the problem sort of subdued, now you can start looking more at the root of the problem, which is obviously, they said, a mental obsession. Yeah? And they talk about, you know, the insanity that precedes the first drink and all like that stuff. So a lot of people think that step two is like being restored to sanity about everything. But that's not the promise in the program. The program is you'll be restored to sanity uh, from that in, that the insanity that precedes the first drink. Yeah, that's where you're going to see the the. Um, that's why it says in a way restore is a good word because at one point you weren't like that when it came to drinking or using. Yeah, you didn't have the insanity yet because you didn't have all these tons of consequences that would have made it crazy to do. Yeah. So if you need an insanity to sort of uh, subvert that recognition. But they also done some studies. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I, did, I did a talk in, at this university in New York, Fordham University, and there was therapists there and people that worked on, you know, this stuff, alcoholism and addictions. And this lady who had been working at Brookhaven Lab, and they had been studying the brains of long-term users, you know, with all these neurological tests. And uh, I didn't know what the definition, because I had to go to the bathroom while she was talking a little bit, but I don't know what the definition she had specifically of long-term user. But And, uh, you know, I wasn't like, all right, tell me exactly what you mean. I just heard it. And, but the part is, is someone who's been using uh, alcohol or drugs for a long time, their front of their brain is shut off. It's not firing, yeah? It's not really a living part of the brain anymore. It's out. There's no light on. And one of the main, uh, supposedly one of the main functions the, the frontal lobe uh, directs is uh, uh, consequences of your behaviors. Yeah? So you can actually make a decision or an option. Hey, this doesn't work because it hasn't worked. <laughs> well, that's shut off totally. So we're just goners, really, at a certain point. There's no defense against the first drink. As soon as the obsession kicks in, we don't have any retaliation in a sense. Yeah. So, and then they said, well, after three months, someone getting sober, it's wild. It says the first month they start firing a little bit. Yeah. And then after three months, which is a big plateau, when people come in, they go 90 and 90. Yeah. But it actually has some verification in science. It says after three months, the thing starts firing quite a lot. Yeah. And then they said that around 18 months, the head's firing pretty well. It's starting to get a lot better and producing more cells and everything. So the mental obsession is like the primary aspect of the disease, yeah? 
it leads us to do something that probably isn't wise to do, which sets off the allergy. And if you've ever been around people who are on a run, it's pointless to try to talk to them. You know, you've got to wait till it's freaking pretty much over, and then they're maybe willing to listen. But while they're taken over by the craving, the, that physical allergy, it's like a, a, a powerful one-two punch, the obsession and the allergy. So, all right, so the mental obsession. Okay, so we can't use a physical condition to override the mental obsession. You know, it doesn't matter how many hours of yoga you do, if you, you may still have a drink without, for uh, knowing in, in your memory that that's the last thing you should freaking do. So, so, and like in recovery it says, self can't get out of self, so what's producing the problem, that obsession, the mental aspect, you can't find the solution there. Yeah. So they termed it a spiritual solution. To me, that just uh, points to another modality of mind. Yeah? I think all there is is mind, and there are other aspects of mind. So we have to be, we have to access another modality of mind to override the obsession with self, the mental obsession. We call it a higher power. You know, turning your willing life over, having a you know, uh, conscious contact with that power. Because when you start having conscious contact with that power, that implies that some interest and attention is going there instead of going in here, into the mental obsession, yeah? But what occurs is, a lot of times, if the mental obsession is rooted in identification as a self, yeah? Not obsession with the self. Because I think the mind in that disease... Uh, in all, all minds, really, that have been conditioned here. But the mind in that disease, the obsession with self just reinforces the identification of self, yeah? It's, if without the obsession going on every day, the identification wouldn't hold water because it has to, a new glue has to be constantly applied because we're bonded uh, with an idea that is really foreign to what we are, which is we're not of a body or a thing, yeah? So for that to seem to be one, there's got to be a really good crazy glue, yeah? And that, I would say, is the narration everyone has during the day. It's all I, me, my, all this and that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that keeps the real dilemma in place, which is identification as self. And if, if that is the truth, then what's, what's said in the book makes sense, which is we're not people with problems, we are the problem. Yeah. We're not people with problems. We are the problem. Just like I was super obsessed with cocaine for a long period of time, but I never became coke. I never thought I was cocaine. There was always a certain line that was never crossed, and I didn't think I was a granular crystal of narcotics. It just never happened. Though I loved it more than anything else, and was passionate like more than anything else in this life, I never crossed that line. I'm saying we've already, we start from being crossed, from having that line crossed. We don't know that we're identified. That's what identification is. You're identified as it, you're the, that's the last place you're going to look into the question because you just assume it to be you. Yeah. So in that case, then the pregnant uh, possibility of the disease is always in place waiting for the obsession, and the obsession can be triggered by a little, you know, not getting what you want, or some lady leaving you, or this or that, but it's already, it's always imminent there, because the identification itself is in place, yeah? 
It's never going away. And it says in recovery, self can't get out of self. So if we want to get out of something called self and we're identified as it, then all our attempts to get out of it would be called self getting out of self, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so maybe I'm not that self. That's the solution. That's what happened with me. That's what was revealed. Was just that, that little nugget. And it changed everything in my recovery and obviously uh, trickled down into my whole life. Yeah, That's what really changed the parameters of the game, the ball game. The stadium was changed, the uniform was changed, the whole game changed. Because I felt, in hindsight, that the diagnosis was finally correct. It wasn't obsession with self. And obviously, we're so out to lunch when we come here, we may believe it was because I did drugs and alcohol. And, and alcohol, that was my problem. Then it says they are just symptoms. And usually you have a lot of rude awakenings because I blamed a lot of stuff on my alcohol consumption and my drug use. Yet after I stopped using, they came back. They were still acting, they were, I was still acting from there. And I'd been sober for years. So obviously that was true. There were just symptoms. And actually what I find, if you see that the second aspect, you mind going this way to them? Yeah, you can go and talk, but it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't do it. Now there's 45 people here, that's very important. So, alright, so here's self, yeah? It can't get out of self. And so, in that identification, as it, it doesn't know that it's self. So it, it, it assumes its idea of self is that it's something that's far bothering it, that's foreign, yeah? And that if I could only get rid of it, I'd be free. But if you're identified as it, there's no getting rid of it. Because the your the solution is now the solution getting out of self is being practiced by the identification as self. <laughs> so wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't seem to get rid of it or get away from it because you're identified as it and you don't know it. And you have to see that in, in a real sick way, the beauty of the uh, disease of alcoholism. Yeah. Because it preys upon this one prior, I would say, uh, dis-ease, which is addiction, of mind's addiction to being a long-lasting, independent, separate entity, a special, unique character. I would say that's the first addiction. I think alcoholism piggybacks on that, infects the thing that's producing the sense of self and makes it an alcoholic self. Yeah, It's sort of like there's already a parasite. This parasite jumps on the other parasite and feeds through the first parasite, the host. And it's mind-boggling because if we were sitting here and suddenly a big bug flew in and landed on one of your arms, or my, if it landed on your arm, I'd laugh. But if it lands on my arm, it'd be like, whoa! Yeah, and immediately like that. Immediately, there would be no thought, oh, I should knock this off. Sometimes you, it comes later, you, say, you wish you hadn't, it was just a little bug, but your knee-jerk reaction is, ah, get off me, get off me. Why isn't that feasible with alcoholism? Yeah, it's like a parasite. It's sort of landed on us. It's possessing us, and it's a very hostile takeover, yet we tend never to sort of... Uh, stretch our possibility to be free of it. What what neutered that that knee-jerk reaction to get out of something that's really painful? Yeah? What neutered that? What sort of anesthetized that? Well, 
it would be identification as self. Because if you were taking yourself to be what's driving you crazy, you would never be able to entertain that you can be free of it. Yeah? You would entertain, I can be free as it. So that means I'll take get therapy, I'll try to socialize it, I'll civilize it, I'll hide it, I'll lie about it, I won't go to parties anymore because it flips out, I won't get into really significant relationships because the rage may show up. So you may practice these principles on your affairs, and because you can't, you limit your affairs. Yeah? Your small life gets smaller and smaller and smaller because the parasite's ever lurking, ever lurking there to act out, yeah? And you and you just never get to the point, hey, I can fucking leave this, because you take yourself to be it. It's a great strategy for a parasite. For a parasite that has no life to be able to land on a host and suck its life out, without the host really making much of a stir, it's an incredible. It's like, you know, when somebody's going to do a heavy operation, they anesthetize you first. They give you a big shot so you don't feel it. It's sort of like that, yeah? <laughs> so what happened with me, I don't know, it was maybe around 10 years, this idea was introduced to me because I never came up with it myself. I did not, I, it never even dawned on me to maybe question who this me was. You know? Never. I questioned it as being bad or good, but I never actually questioned its existence. It was just assumed to be so. Yeah. When this inf- this invitation was given to me, I started to entertain it, and you know what? Something happened. And I got a little space from me and the parasite, or this, what I am in the parasite, and I saw that it's not me. And as soon as I saw sufficiently or strong enough that it's not me, the first thing my mind came up with, and it had it had been frozen all these years, but as soon as it was freed with this possibility, hey, I may not be that, I can be free of it. I mean, radically free of it. I don't have to therapize it, I don't have to freaking limit my affairs to protect its little face, I don't have to do this or do that, I can actually be free of it. And in my sense, it's like becoming a free-range addict or a free-range alcoholic. You actually get free. Free. Yeah. So, I really like the idea of understanding what ails you clearly so that the right antidote can be given. Yeah. Now, I believe the 12 steps do not produce spirituality. They minimize the mental obsession. We lose interest in all that and then we gain interest in, some, in what we truly are. And I believe we are spiritual. I don't believe we're a thingness, you know? I believe we are spiritual. So we don't need anything to make ourselves spiritual. All we need to do is diminish our attention and interest that's enslaved to the idea of being itself. And it's very difficult to break that slavery if you believe you are the self. Yeah? Because it's almost like a homing device. Your interest and attention goes to whatever you believe you are. So if you really believe you're this historical figure who has all these dark secrets and da da da, all this stuff, then your 